Here we go. Okay. Welcome to the 1000 Hours Outside podcast. My name is Ginny Yurich. I am the founder of 1000 Hours Outside. And I'm sitting across from a new friend today. We tried to hug each other through the screen. Susie Spickle, welcome. Hi, it's such a pleasure to be here. I am such a huge fan of 1000 Hours Outside. It speaks to my heart so much. And I feel so lucky to be on this podcast. So thank you. Oh, it's so thrilled to have you. I recently read your new book, The Animal Adventurer's Guide, How to Prowl for an Owl, Make Snail Slime, and Catch a Frog Barehanded, 50 Activities to Get Wild with Animals. And this is a delightful book. Susie, congratulations. Illustrated by Becca Hall, you two came together and made something that is so great for kids and families. I love it. Huge congrats to you. Thank you. I like to tell people it's not really a book for reading. It's really a book for doing. And I was so fortunate that Becca Hall did the illustration. She just is so delightful and her illustrations are kind of whimsical and charming Mm -hmm. and inviting. So yeah, it is very inviting. I love the book. Let me read a little bit about you. Ever since she can remember, naturalist and writer Susie Spickle has always been thrilled by the sight of any wild animal, whether it was the fireflies that lit up her childhood home in Brooklyn or holding a woolly bear caterpillar with her youngest child. Susie's life work has been helping people of all ages find ways to notice and connect with the wild creatures of our everyday world. You have a 30-year career as a naturalist where you've taught thousands of children parents and teachers and given hundreds of public talks at nature center schools colleges universities libraries and conferences Susie is the recipient of new hampshire's environmental educator award congrats whether she's talking about star-nosed moles or how to help children engage with the natural world her passion and commitment to connecting people within the natural world is clearly communicated you're also a writer says you tuck away time to write when you're not catching frogs with preschoolers, tracking bobcats with middle schoolers, or hawk watching with her own three children. And your writing has been in so many places, essays in Taproot Magazine, all over the place, a regular contributor to the Backyard Nature column, her local paper, all these things, and also to the Harris Center for Conservation Education's newsletter, which is sort of a main place for you. Is that correct? The Harris Center? That's where I've worked for the past 30 years as a naturalist. And it's just a tiny little place in uh, southwestern New Hampshire, tucked into the little corner of the Highlands, the Monadnock region. It's been a great place to work. I've worked with people of all ages. I like to think of a lifespan um, environmental education. So youngest are babies in backpacks, all the way to people in hospice and memory care. So really, it does the whole gamut. Isn't that an amazing thing about nature? I think it's a unique thing that it can engage every age, every single one. It's true. Yeah, I don't think there's much else like that. So how neat that you've been able to work with all of the ages and to be able to see how they engage with nature in their own unique ways. And then you came out with this book, The Animal Adventurer's Guide. What a perfect fit. Yeah, it was perfect. It was a dream come true for me. I always knew that I wanted to write and I did. I've been writing throughout my career. Um, And then I just thought I'm going to take all my favorite activities around animals and put them in a book for kids. Because I really believe and have seen as a naturalist that animals really seem to kind of like open the heart of kids like that. They just kind of want to live as an animal. And when you give them the opportunity 
to have experiences observing animals or being close with animals. I just think it makes a deep bond. It connects Mm. them in a very deep way that travels with them into adulthood. Yeah. And these are the animals that are all around us. And that was one of the things I really loved. Squirrels and birds and insects and spiders and all of the ones that even are right in our home. It doesn't really matter where we live. And I love that you had that in the book that this works for everyone. And you talk about just falling in love with the world and what is out there and what's around us. And so I love the book. And I I actually learned a whole lot from it. Oh, good. You know, you write every animal is someone to meet. It's just real sweet and charming and interesting. So can we kind of just talk through some of the different parts of the book? Let's start with birds, because that's the first one in there. And you talk about no matter where you live, there's going to be birds and different kinds of birds. And you talk about making a bird hide. Can you tell us what that is? Oh, my gosh. I love the bird hide. The bird hide is like, um, you know, a scientist would call it a bird blind. And it's just a collection of sticks. When you're a kid, you can just pile up sticks or brush or even hay bales, no matter where you live, you can find some debris and kind of pile it up. And you don't want it like too tight. You want to be able to peek through it. And that's the whole idea is that it's sort of like an invisibility cloak, you know, like in Harry Potter, when he puts on the cloak and he disappears, this is like, you get to disappear into nature. And when you're behind the blind or the hidey spot and you can peek through it, the animals don't really see you and you can see them. And it's a great chance to observe all the birds, plus maybe some small mammals that might come out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. How fun for kids. And so, like I said, I learned a lot in this book. So tell us about the bird songs that we hear. What's the purpose? When can we hear them the best? Yeah. So the best time to hear the birds singing is kind of early in the morning. You have to be a little bit of an early bird to be a bird song listener. You got to get up, but it's worth it because you can hear kind of a chorus of wild birds. And really the best time of year is springtime. That's when they're Mm. mostly singing. And it's mostly the males who are busy kind of defending their territory. And, you know, I... Um, have tried for a really long time to be a really good birder, being able to identify birds just by hearing them. And I can't, I'll just be honest, it's very hard for me. And I don't feel like you need to worry if you don't know who the bird is. It's really just about the experience of being out there and listening to all this life, this beautiful song, all these voices that are are singing about where they are and who they are. And, and you can just witness that and kids will love it. And they can make up their own names for the birds. So if they hear a bird that's like, yank, 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 then they they can say that's the yank, yank, yank bird. You don't need to worry so much about identifying. And that's part of my kind of hope of the book is that it frees people up to not feel like they have to be an expert, but they can Mm. just go out and and connect. And enjoy. I love that. I've never heard anyone say that before. (laughs) Everyone always is like, try and figure out what kind of bird it is. But I do think that I just was talking to this Dr. Carla Hannaford about our dominances. And I do think that some are more auditory focused and some are not. And so I could see that maybe for some people, it would be very hard to identify. I think I have a hard time with that, identifying which bird is which. And so I love that permission to just enjoy. We were on a hike. My husband and I went on a hike recently, just the two of us. We're trying to do this a little bit more often now that our kids are a little bit older. 
and they can babysit themselves. And we went on a hike just right by our home and there was a woodpecker right above our heads. And we stood there for probably 10 minutes and watched that woodpecker so loud. It was so close. So it really is a way to ground you and to bring you into the present to enjoy the moment with the birds. And then I liked what you talked about with the robin. Fascinating information. Can you tell us about the breathing? Yeah, well, the the robin is just a really fascinating bird. And I think it doesn't get a lot of attention because it's so prevalent. So we just kind of ignore it. And I'm really all about the everyday and what's amazing and magical and incredible about the everyday animals that live in our world. And Robins are one of them and they have an incredible way of breathing so they can sing their song. They have a really long song and that's a song you can identify. It's a cheerio, cheery me, cheery up, cheerily. And um, you can usually see them singing too. And if you watch them, they don't really take that many breaths. They just have this like extra capacity to breathe through their song and really sing it out. Wow. Yeah, like I said, there's so many things I learned in the book, and I think kids would find that fascinating. And I do love that everything is about what's right around you in the moment, because then you can talk about it. And I think that when you know about those things, you notice them more, and it adds a lot of wonder and awe to your regular outside time. A lot of our outside time is very regular and ordinary. We walk in a neighborhood, We walk on a trail that's near our home. It's the same thing kind of over and over again. But when you know these things about the world, it adds that little spark. And so I think that we'll start to notice the robins more because of what you said and to try and look and see what with them singing and not really taking a breath. It's fascinating. Yeah, it is really cool. I think too, you know, I love what you said about our kind of the world around us is sort of ordinary. We get in these rhythms and we might forget to pay attention to, you know, what is kind of enchanting and charming about the world around us. And animals are such a great avenue into that because you never know when you're going to meet one. You're walking along and all of a sudden there's a little woolly bear on your path. And that's a moment to stop. It's like those teachable moments and the animals invite you into them and they're surprising. And I think that's what's so compelling about them. Yes, totally. And they're moving and there's that novelty piece. That's what happens when we go on a walk and every once in a while, we'll see a rabbit run by. Or one time this year, I saw a couple deer. So it is that novelty and you don't ever know when it's going to happen and it adds an element of surprise. And it's really special, even in the everyday ordinary moments. So we're going to be looking for the American Robin. I love that. They don't even need to stop singing to breathe. That's incredible. Yeah, they just go through it. I mean, imagine if you could sing like that. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Yeah. And then you talked about that they have this sort of emergency signal. Yeah, they um so birds they're able to communicate in so many ways and we just get focused on that song, you know, oh the cheery me cheerily cheery up. Oh, it's a robin, but they have other forms of voicing that alert the robins around them to danger. And basically, even other birds can identify that. If they hear a robin make a a chuck noise, they're like, "Uh uh-oh, danger. So they're international speakers. Birds and other animals understand the language around them. And there's a great book. I think it's called What the Robin Knows. And it's a, a book for adults. And it is really all about how the robin is so common and and we don't pay that much attention to it, but it is really such a signature of the forest and world around us. And it lives in so many places that spending time to really 
understand what does the Robin know can make us look at it in a whole new way. Mm, That sounds like such a good book. I'm going to read that one for sure. And in this bird section, so what you have is you have this series of craft ideas, activity ideas, all sorts of different kinds of ideas of things that you can do surrounding your local birds. And one of them, which I'm really interested in trying, because I've never seen, we've never seen an owl in the wild. We've seen them at nature centers and things like that, is to make an owl collar. So if someone were interested in trying to see an owl in the wild, what would be some of your advice? All right. Well, such a great question. You definitely need to go out at like twilight or night to see an owl because that's mostly when they're out. And it's really good to pay attention to your neighborhood if you've heard any owls around or or maybe call any local nature centers and see if they know where the owls are because you kind of want to go to where they are. And then you get to go on an owl prowl, which I just is so exciting. It's good to bring a flashlight with you and you head out. And if you know what type of owls you have in your neighborhood, like in where I live, we have barred owls. That's the one that's most common and most vocal. I paid attention and learned the call of the barred owl. And you can go out and make the call with your own voice. And kids love to do this. The barred owl says, who cooks for you? Who cooks for you all? And you just hoot it like, that wasn't very good. I'm not very good at it, but you can try it. And if the owl hears you and thinks that you are another owl, it will hoot back. They're territorial and they'll come in close. Um, And it's a little bit like I like to call this a little bit of a special magic trick. Like it's something you want to do now and then, but you don't want to go out every day and hoot at your owls because then the owls in your neighborhood will think you are the bigger and better owl and they will leave. Mm -hmm. And so you don't want to scare your owls away. If you have trouble calling owls, maybe you're like me and you have a high voice, you can use your homemade owl collar. And it's simply made out of a soda can (laughs) or, you know, a can, you drink whatever's in it. And then you're going to duct tape up the drinking hole. And then you're going to poke a hole at the bottom of the can, kind of not at the bottom, but along the top of the can close to the bottom. And you want it to be about a dime size hole. And that's where you're going to blow into that becomes like your, it's like a flute, you blow into it like a flute. And then you just make like the but you, ooh, and it will make the call. And it's a really wow. great tool. And, you know, kids love it. They can practice. They will need to practice and it does work. So it's wow. a great thing to do. I don't know if you're familiar with the Jane Yolen book, Owl Moon. It's a kid's yes. book. Yes. Yeah. If you have young kids, you know, reading that book before you go out and then doing mm-hmm. it, it just makes it make a great activity. Mm-hmm. And Ginny, I want to just say too that I'm a big fan of going out at night with my family, um, going and looking for animals at night because so many animals are nocturnal that we miss a whole host of them if we stay inside. And it's quite an adventure. You know, bring a flashlight, be safe, choose a safe place to go, not where there are a lot of cars, if you can, but maybe a park or a pathway near your home and acquaint yourself with being out at twilight and at night. And you never know what you're going to hear or see. 
Wow. Yeah, I think the owl one, I definitely want to try. And you have detailed instructions with beautiful pictures that people can follow right in your book. And then you end each section. And I love this. And with the owls, there's also the owl pellets, which we have done that, but we've never found any in the wild. And I know you talk about sterilization and things like that, but it would be neat to see one in the wild. And I can't imagine for a child to call out to an owl and have them call back to you. I mean, that would be so thrilling. It is an amazing experience when it works. And then I've done a lot of owl prowls in my lifetime as a naturalist. It's Mm -hmm. in New Hampshire. We do it in um, around March. That's when owls are in their courtship season around here. So that's when they're most vocal. And, you know, sometimes we hear an owl and sometimes we don't. So Mm -hmm. sometimes we hear other things or see other things. It's always an adventure. Mm -hmm. That's the novelty of it. You don't know. And I do think that the screen manufacturers are trying to manufacture that similar novelty with the scrolling and the pulling down of the screen and that type of thing. But then when you go out in nature, nature also provides it. And at the end of each section of your book, I love it, you have a scavenger hunt. So there's a bird scavenger hunt in there, which is so fun. And I think those are sometimes ideas that are hard to come up with on the spot. So it's great that you have that in the book with really unique things for kids to find and to think about and for families to use. So I love that in the bird section. And you were just talking about going out at night. And I loved learning about why some mammals eyes glow. So could you talk about that? That was such a cool part in the mammal section. Yeah. So um, I love this. Behind many eyes of of mammals, they have a special kind of lens. It's a reflecting lens. It's called the tapetum and it's like a cloak of light. It grabs any little bit of light, like starlight or moonlight, brings it into the eyes and kind of bounces it back out. So in a way they have like built in flashlights in their eyes. And that's why like if you're driving, sometimes at night, you might catch the eye shine of an animal as it crosses the road. And that's just the the, the pedum flashing back the light at you. And you can you know, notice that different animals have different colored eye shine. So, you know, something like, yeah, something like a bobcat will have a different color eye shine than a fox. You can't really identify an animal based on its eye shine, but you can come close. Like if it's up high and it's shining, it might be a deer. If it's down Mm. low and slinking across the road, it might be a fox. So you can use that. And it's really, really fun. You can just go out with a regular flashlight near a field um, and kind of scan it across the field and see if anything picks up any eye shine. When the skies open up while others seek shelter, I embrace the rain. Heading to my favorite hike, the raindrops are like a soothing melody and my vessies ensure each step is dry and comfortable, turning a simple outing into a rather delightful experience. Whenever my kids and I are stepping into a great outdoors adventure, I love wearing Vessi's Stormburst boots to capture the beauty of springtime landscapes. Their robust style is perfect for our nature excursions, adding a little dash of elegance to our outdoor explorations. This spring, transform how you view wet weather with Vessi. Their Dymatex technology makes their shoes not just waterproof, but a stylish barrier against rain and puddles. Whether it's a sudden downpour or a planned seaside walk, Vessi shoes ensure your feet stay dry and comfortable. Embrace the essence of spring with Vessi. 
From chic city walks to adventurous treks, find the perfect pair for your lifestyle at Vessi.com slash outside and enjoy an automatic 15% off your first order upon checkout. That's V-E-S-S-I dot com slash outside for 15% off your first order. Eating better is easy with Factors delicious ready to eat meals. Every fresh Never frozen meal is chef crafted, dietitian approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Also, there are more than 60 add ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. So get started today and get after your goals. Some of the things we love about Factor are their two minute meals. You can fuel up fast with Factor's restaurant quality meals that are ready to heat and eat whenever you are. Our kids love the pancakes, smoothies, and more. And there's a wide variety of easy options for the entire day, including midday bites. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries anytime. And remember, to sign up and save, we've done the math. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash outside50 and use code outside50 to get 50% off. That's code outside50 at factormeals.com slash outside50 to get 50% off. I'm not sure if this is in the book. I can't remember if it got cut and I haven't looked back in a while, but spiders. Oh my gosh, Jenny. If you go out to your front lawn and you take your flashlight and you scan it around the ground, you'll see some eye shine and they might be red or even blue. They'll look like tiny little rubies or emeralds in the grass. And that's eye shine from spiders, which is just like so cool. I mean, I think it's cool. Yeah, I have lived my whole life, you know, seeing, especially at night, seeing, especially deer, I think, if you're driving along, maybe if you're out in the country and you see the deer, you see their eyes. But I had no idea why. And I never really thought about it. it doesn't It's not the same for humans. So what a neat thing to know about and to know why and to be able to talk about what does it look like? What are the colors of it? And that is so interesting. I love the word eye shine and knowing why. And so that's a fun thing. And then you talked about squirrels in the mammal section. And you said this cool thing. You said squirrels are so common, sort of similar to the robin, I guess, that it can be easy to forget that they are even there. But squirrels are just as feral as mountain lions or weasels. So what are some ways that we can start to notice squirrels? the squirrels around us more because they are so fascinating. Oh my gosh. Well, I'm nuts about squirrels, first of all. Just a warning. Like you you open the gate. Now I could go on for hours about squirrels. <laughs> I mean, I do think like they're so prevalent. Everybody has squirrels around them. No, really, no matter where you live. You know, where I grew up in Brooklyn, that was the first wild animal that I kind of fell in love with was we called him Piggy the squirrel because he ate all the bird seed out of our bird feeder. And I mean, I just think that they're approachable and everything they do is just as wild as any other really wild animal. They're feral, they're wild. So paying attention to how they communicate and squirrels communicate a lot through their tail, which is like amazing. If you watch the squirrels, watch their tail. And if their tail is like 
wagging back and forth. It means that they're anxious. They're paying attention to all around them. And if their tail is kind of like flicking up and down in front of them, they're feeling very confident. So they they have all this communication that goes on through their tail. And you can have your kids just kind of keep a log of what they're noticing about their squirrel tails and seeing if they can decode what it means, you know, what the squirrel's tail is saying. And then you know, they're very, like at the bird feeders, you can watch the interplay between the squirrels. There are some that are dominant and will kind of guard the feeder and chase the other ones away and watch them run up the tree. And then when you watch them run down the tree, they're unique because they can come face down the tree. Think about they're running head down. And that's because their hind paws actually rotate 180 degrees so they can hold on to the tree behind them. And I just I love that. Whoa. So next time, watch their feet. So I can, like I said, I. Yeah, but this really- is what I love about your book because it's like you take these things that we would just maybe mostly ignore, and they're kind of in the background, and you bring them to the forefront to say, "Wait, wait, wait! There's something really cool going on around you." And just check out the squirrel that's running face down. I mean, obviously, you see that all the time, but I've never thought about why or how they can do that. Oh, it's so neat! And I just saw on your Instagram you had a video it was so cute of one of those bird feeders that stuck to the window with the suction cups and the squirrels up inside of it it's really impressive squirrel i i my family teases me because i don't actually feed the birds i end up feeding the squirrels and you know people are like well you're wasting all your seed but i'm like no that's not the way i look at it i'm getting an opportunity to watch a wild mammal come in and really pay attention to it and i just think that you know we tend to rate like our experience in wildness like oh i saw a bald eagle as though like you've reached some pinnacle But maybe like in your backyard, there's a little chickadee and the chickadee has just the same wildness that an eagle does. And kids pay attention to those things more. And I think we put too much emphasis on having like these amazing wild animal experiences when we overlook those same experiences could be had with the everyday animals around us. Wow. That's actually making me tear up. That's very touching. And it's very true. And your book exudes that message that there is beauty all around us and the world has so much to offer through the chickadee and through the squirrels. And so I got to pull myself together here. (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, I just think about it from a kid's perspective. You know, they see, they notice those little animals so much faster than we do. When my daughter was three, we could hardly walk down our road because she would notice every single bug. And for her, every single bug was kind of an amazing wild mystery and this incredible experience. And it made me look at it. It's sort of like looking at the world with beginner eyes, you know? What a beautiful thing too. That's such a gift that kids give to us is they give us that gift of looking at things differently. I love that looking at the world with beginner eyes so you have a couple of things that you are really known for. One is tracking and another one is scat. And both <laughs> of these are in the mammals section. And you had some really fun ideas that I've not read anywhere else about tracking and using a tracking tube and oh, the yeah. onion, the onion trail challenge. So could you tell us a couple of those sure. ideas that are in the book? Yeah, I actually just finished a whole little um, course with tracking tubes. So tracking tubes are actually used by researchers, but we adapted them to be used with kids. And they're just a piece of a PVC pipe 
you know, you can get out any old hardware store. You might even have some laying around in your garage. Who knows? And then you take a piece of paper that's kind of cut to fit along the bottom of the tube and you take charcoal or chalk and you rub it on the paper and it makes a dust. And that's for tiny toes to leave their footprints in. And you put it in the tracking tube and you bait the tracking tube with a little bit of seeds and sun butter or peanut butter, you kind of put that right in the middle and you leave it in a spot where you think might make a good place for little mammals to come. You leave it a couple of days, you know, maybe three or four or five days. And then when you go back, you should be able to see some footprints leading into the tube and out of the tube of the small mammals that are around. And, oh. and it it's really works. It's really cool. It's so much fun. It, it's a tool that, you know, researchers, small mammal researchers have been using for many years. And we, we were like, Hey, we can use these with kids. And it is a big, big thing that we do at the Harris center. It's sometimes we will even take a little trail camera because a lot of people. Oh, have, that's a cool idea. Sandy. Yeah. And we kind of put it down on the by the tube and we watched because it, it can be hard to identify the footprints in the chalk or the charcoal. You know, they get blurry and there's a lot of in and out going. So, you know, having the camera just helps a little bit. But it no matter what, you're still going to have a great experience. So, oh, yeah, I love that one about. I think that there's a couple things like that, that, you know, in our world and people are struggling with feeling down and just a lot of anxiety and to have these little things that make us excited to get up in the morning. I feel that way about in the winter and we haven't had that cold of a winter this year, but we try and freeze things. So at night you set it out in a bunt pan or something like that. And then in the morning you put little flowers in there or different types of bits of nature and then you take it out and it'll shine in the sun. So that sort of anticipation, I guess, is the word. So if you set your tube out, you have this anticipation. If you include that trail cam too, about what came. Oh, how neat. I love that. And then yeah. I love what you said. I think actually is a really big statement. You said it really works. And I think that's what we're looking for. And that's what your book is so unique is that it's about everything that's around us. And it's things that you have actually been doing for decades. And you know what delights the kids and delights the families. And so that's something really special about your book that I love because we don't have that much time. We want to invest it in things that really work. So yeah. the tube is a great idea. And all of the things in the book are similar. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I, I mean, I have to give such a huge shout out to the Harris Center where I've been working for the past 30 years and all my incredible environmental education colleagues. We call the, everything that went in the book, we refer to as the tried and true. Like it's what it's worked. We try it. We know it. We and this is what we do in our classes when we we work with, you know, thousands of kids every year yeah. and for decades. And they're all, this all really does work. And it, I tried really hard to include things that didn't require a lot of stuff or yes. money. You yes. know, you could have a trail camera, but you don't have to, you right. could use a tracking tube, but you, you know, a PV, a piece of PVC pipe, but you could also use like a toilet paper tube. Yes. And you, said you could sift flour and put yeah. a little something out and see if you can see the tracks in the sifted flour. It's so true. And the onion one yeah. was so intriguing to me. You're talking about tracking with your nose. So in going along with something that would be relatively inexpensive, you need an onion. Tell us about the oh. onion trail. 
So fun. So um, the Onion Trail is all about kind of having kids experience what it might be like if they could make sense of their world through their sense of smell, like so many animals and particularly mammals do. So you take a half onion and you have your kids maybe wait and you set out a trail by rubbing the onion on trees and then you hide at the end of the trail and they have to sniff their way to find you along the, you know, sniffing each tree. It's really hard, um, but so fun. And I got to just add an extra twist to it. It's so fun if you do this activity, if you have older kids and you do it kind of at dusk so that they can't, you can actually, when you rub an onion on a tree, you can see it. So if you do it during the daytime, there's a visual cue for kids to see. But if you do it at twilight, that visual cue disappears. And it really does become like, how good can you sniff out where the person's hiding? And wow, what a funny activity, a really cool twist on hide and seek. And then you have in there the particulars, you know, I think it said something like 20 feet or so between each spot and you would rub that. That is a really cool activity for multi-age, the older siblings could do it the younger kids probably could too they can make the trail and then go hide I love that one so a lot of fantastic tracking ideas in the book both to look for tracking and then to set up your own trails and of course you talk about scat and I had seen one of your posts that you have bobcat scat in a jar yes it was my valentine gift a few many years ago Yeah, so okay, so tell us why animal poop is so important oh to notice God. and what can we learn from it? Okay, again, this is dangerous because like squirrels, in my neighborhood, the kids around here, because I teach in the local school for the Harris Center, they call me the princess of poop. And I am not offended by it. I actually love this kind of name that they've given me. And it's true. I am a really <laughs> huge fan of sharing um kind of how you can identify an animal just by what it actually leaves behind from its behind. So, uh, you know, uh, in my line of work, there's a little saying I like to say, and it goes, if you really want to know what an animal eats, take a good hard look at what it excretes. And what an incredible way to unlock a food chain for kids to really understand, you know, you find coyote scat, and there it is, you don't, you, you know, handling scat is dangerous, like, of course, and gross. And I don't handle it. But to look at it, you can see that maybe the coyote scat has deer fur in it. And there it is right in front of you. The coyote ate the deer. So I have a collection um, of scat and I collect it and I give directions in the book (laughs) on how to collect it. If you're no one has ever said that on the podcast before, Susie, you're the first one. (laughs) I have a collection of scat. That's amazing. It's renowned too. I mean, people bring me gifts from from different places with scat from all over. Um, And I think it's, yeah, it's, you know, it's a little weird. I get that. It's embarrassing to my own kids. They roll their eyes. If they were here, they'd be rolling their eyes at me. But really like, isn't it cool that you don't need footprints to know what animals in your backyard? All you need to look at is what it really left behind. And you can learn how to identify an animal based on the size and the shape and the contents of their scat. So it's just more clues. And it isn't just clue about that animal. It's clues about what that animal's been eating. So So tell us a couple of scats 
Is that, I don't even know if that's how you would say it. What, tell us a couple of the things that are in your collection. Well, so yeah, the Bobcat Scat is really wonderful and that's full of deer fur and deer bones. And then I have scat from an animal called a fisher. Do you guys have, you must have fisher where you are. I don't know. I read that in your book and I didn't know quite what that was. A fisher is related to a weasel. So it's in the weasel family. So weasels, minks, otters, wolverine, and there's fisher. And fisher around here have a reputation of eating porcupine. They're like one of the only mammals that can actually eat a porcupine. And I found fisher scat with porcupine quills in it. So I felt like I've got the proof. Like here it is. This animal did eat a porcupine and I've got the scat to prove it. So wow, it can eat with the quills. That is fascinating. Well, it doesn't actually eat the quills. It kind of, you know, it scratches them away, but it in- accidentally ingests a few of them. What a great thing to have and to see and to notice. We were in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan this past summer, and we were in this trail, for maybe four miles or so. It went out to Lake Superior. So I don't think it was super heavily trafficked. And along one of the boardwalks, we found bear scat. And we someone knew. Someone knew the shape in our group. Someone knew that it was bear scat. And it was actually very fascinating. Everyone crowded around and it had berries in it. And so it was a unique thing that we won't ever forget. And it was neat to think, oh, a bear came through right on this spot that we're walking. Right on this boardwalk, a bear came through. So that was a really cool thing to see. It is really, really cool. I think one of my other favorite scats is actually from a woodpecker, which is really, it's not a mammal, but the pileated woodpecker, which is like the really big one with the red crest on its Mm -hmm. head. It eats bugs. And at the base of the tree where it's feeding, you can find like bits of their scat and it will be, it'll glisten um, like sparkles because it's made up of the outside skeleton of the bugs that it's been eating, the ants mostly. And I just think that's so cool. So you can really, you can see yeah, the scat from Well, that's bird. interesting because that is the woodpecker that we just saw. I was talking about recently with my husband and we saw this woodpecker for a long time, just trying to get the insects out of the tree, I think. And so I could go back. I actually know where we were. So yeah, I didn't go think back. to look down below. That's fascinating. Well, it's just another one of those things, Susie, that like you talk about, it's just common. These are right. the common things, but can be so fascinating and we can make a bigger deal out of it when we see it. And try and tell the story. Where do you think the animal was going? You have so many great ideas in the book about journaling and observing and questions to ask. So a, is a scatologist, is that an actual word? Um, I don't, I think it is. Yeah. I mean, you can be a scatologist and that's somebody who really studies scat. And the the study of scat has really gone wild right now because of DNA. So scientists or conservation researchers often will use scat and they can figure out the DNA. I mean, there's just so much to it. So if you have an older kid that might be really interested in science, they have scat sniffing dogs even that are used in conservation to, they learn the dog keys in on a specific animal that might be really hard for a researcher to find, but because a dog can sniff out the scat, I mean, the, the, possibilities are limitless when it comes Mm -hmm. to scat. (laughs) Yeah. So that's all in the mammal section of your book. And then, like I said, similar to the bird, you end with this really cool scavenger hunt ideas, which is a great tool for families and for teachers, for nature schools, for forest schools. And then you go on to the amphibians and reptiles. What is it? Do you say it herping? 
Yeah, herping, herpetologist. Is, uh, when you have amphibians and reptiles together, you are studying herps. That's kind of like the name for them. So you don't have to keep saying amphibian and reptiles because it's, yeah. it's a mouthful. So you go herping. Can you tell us there was a really cool story in, in there about snakeskin? Oh my gosh. Yeah. Um, so snakeskin is such an amazing thing to be able to find and you can find it um, like in wood piles, stone walls. But I was so fortunate that one day I was at uh, the local pond with a group of students and we were collecting pond creatures. But in the midst of collecting it, we noticed the water snake down on the shallows of the water. And it was kind of going back and forth under the water on the gravel of the pond. And we watched it shed its skin, like wow. right there in, in the, the shallow, water, in the water. It's it like 15 kids and me. And it was a big snake. It was like a three foot long water snake. Yeah. And I mean, I live very rural. And so the kids in my town, they're not really worried about the water snake. It swims through the swimming hole. People get out of the water and we look at it mm -hmm. and then we go back in when it's gone. But this was so cool to watch it. And what was neat, Ginny, was when we saw it come out, it looked so dull when it was beginning to rub. And then as it emerged from the shed skin, its body glistened. It had like brand new glistening skin. Wow. I keep thinking like, wow, I wish I could do that. You know, get rid of your old. <laughs> skin and we wow. collected I'm looking at it right now it's like right in my I have a little area where I keep my nature collections and I can see it but um we had kept the skin and we measured mm -hmm. it and we all looked at it and we all got a chance to feel it and I dried it out and brought it back for the kids to see it was such a magical experience and it was one of those moments like where we were just at the pond doing everyday things at the pond and who would have thought and there it was this amazing incredible, enchanting, mm. stunning experience that we had. Yeah, we fascinating. Your mouth is dropped open. And really interesting that an everyday occurrence, you're out doing your normal things, can also be a once in a lifetime thing. Yeah. That may be the only time. That may be when we went up to the Upper Peninsula and saw that bear scat. We don't go up there very often. We've only been up there twice. I mean, it's possible that I won't ever see something like that again. Sometimes these everyday things to see a, a snake. I mean, I've never seen a snake shed its skin ever. You yeah. hardly ever even can find the snake skin. That's one thing. But to actually see it happen. And then you had written that it's inside out. Yeah, it sheds it inside out. Think of the way you take a sock off. You know, you take it off from the top and you pull it out. What at least kids do, you know, their socks are inside out. So when it shed its skin, it's actually kind of coming out of the skin and the skin is peeling back. And at the end, it's inside out, which is so cool. And, yeah. you know, like what you were just saying, in a way, those moments are touchstones for families. Mm -hmm. So when you and your family, you know, 10 years from now, you might say, remember when we saw the bear scat? Remember that? The kids at the pond will be like, remember when we saw the snake shed its skin? I mean, I spend a lot of time outside. I have never ever seen a snake shed its skin before. And I had no idea that a water snake would shed its skin in the water. That was new wow. for me too. So, you know, even somebody like me who I just know, I try to love every little bit of nature and read and, and explore everything. There's still new things for me to discover. And that's mm -hmm. partly what I love about it. I have been looking for simple ways to form healthy habits and get the nutrients my body needs when my immune system feels unsupported. And that's why I decided to give AG1 a try. Not only does AG1 deliver my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics 
and more. But it's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day. And it makes me feel nourished and ready to face the day. As a parent, longevity is on my mind more than ever before. I want to make sure I'm taking really good care of myself so I can continue to show up for the moments that matter with my kids. Every day, AG1 helps me build long-term health with daily nutrients that support brain, gut, and immune health. All it takes is one scoop a day, and I'm setting myself up for the long run. AG1 is a supplement I trust to provide the support my body needs daily, and that's why I'm excited to welcome them as a new partner. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3K2 and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash 1000. That's drinkag1.com slash 1000. Check it out. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Question, what's the first thing you do if you had an extra hour in your day? Read a few chapters of that book, start painting that guest bedroom, tackle that pile of laundry, play a card game with your kids. A lot of us spending our lives wishing we had more time. The question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and make it a priority. If you're feeling stuck, therapy is something that can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. Therapy is a wonderful thing. It can help you learn positive coping skills or show you how to navigate properly setting boundaries. With BetterHelp, it's easy to get started. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try and visit betterhelp.com slash 1000 hours to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash 1000 hours. Yeah. And you discover it in a way that you actually saw it happen. That is just what an experience in an ordinary setting to have a once in a lifetime experience that's now in a book that you won't ever forget in a group of students. And I like what you said about things being a touchstone. These small things, if we notice them, they make our everyday experiences unique. And that's what fills our memory banks. I had talked, I'm not, I can't remember who it was, but they were talking about how when I think it's this book called by Dr. Michael Rucker. He talks a lot about fun and that when our experiences are the same and similar, our brains encode it as one memory. So your drive to work, it's just one memory. But if you have these little nuances and these special little things that happen, like a neat experience with a different animal, then it's a new memory. And so what happens is you look back on your life and I think nature allows you to feel that your life is more full. Because you have more unique memories because these things happen that are novel that you don't expect. Yeah, I love what you just said, too. It reminds me like when I'm driving to work, I pass this field and one just one time I saw a red fox curled up on the rock in the field. It was like a warm, early spring day. And every time I go by, by that rock, I look for that fox. And it's been probably 10 years, but it is like encoded in my mind. Like mm-hmm. that's the fox rock. Yeah. You know? Yeah, just one small experience like that. And your book just leads people to think about nature in that way of embracing the things that are around us that seem like they're not very special, but really 
They are. And so in herping, then you also talk about the snake and their forked tongue. So what does that do? What does the forked tongue do? So the tongue of the snake and, and the reason they're always having it licking in and out is that they are actually sensing their environment through their tongue. And the forks can sense different aspects or different edges of the environment. So each fork is in it. Instead of just having one tongue come out and sensing just one direction, it's feeling multi-directional, which is just so cool to think about. And I have in the, in the book, a little activity where you take out spices and, and instead of like tasting them, you kind of breathe them in. You have your tongue out too, and you kind of breathe them in and see if you can figure out what the smell is that you're feeling on your tongue and in your mouth and what spice it is. And it's really fun. It's hard. It's very hard to do, but it just, I mean, snakes are so kind of different than humans that I think when we can give kids an opportunity to sort of imagine what it's like to be a snake, it Mm -hmm. makes them feel more compassionate towards the snake. They Mm -hmm. can feel a kinship, a connection. And maybe a little less scared because a lot of people do write in about that they have a child that's scared of one thing or the other. It could be spiders, it could be snakes, but to understand them in a little bit different of a way to add that little bit of curiosity that might help a child to get over some of those fears. And then even lizards, you say lizards have the forked tongues. And then you talk about basking, which I like this one because I do love seeing turtles bask. But you say there's all sorts of animals that bask in the sun. Yeah, I mean, bat, we like to bask in the sun, like on a, you know, a cold day in the winter, you and I both live in the northern climates. I mean, I love to turn my face to the sun and feel it. And, um, and that's true. I mean, lots of animals bask and a lot of them that are cold blooded are baskers, and they have to bask to warm their body up for the environment. But you can see other animals basking as well, including something like a cormorant, like a bird that that's in the water, it'll come out of the water and kind of sit with its wings kind of drooped and open. And that's its way of basking too. So, I mean, I think the sun... I know we're all worried about protecting ourselves from sun and and I I get that but I also think it's really important to have a little bit of time where we even let our eyes open up to the sun. I know that that's really important in the formation of vitamin D for humans and I have some turtles that I take care of some wild turtles that I'm going to be releasing this spring and I have a basking light for them. And what I was reading is they need that basking light to help form the same vitamins that we form. They need those too. So it's vitamin D. So, you know, that's just one thing about basking. What an interesting thing, that connection. It was 55 degrees here yesterday. So it is the middle of February when we're recording this. And so it's normally very cold. Like I said, normally we're freezing things and there's a lot of snow. This has been a little bit more mild of a winter. So it was 55 degrees. It'll be the only time in February that it was that warm. And it was maybe for one hour and the Mm -hmm. sun also came out. And so all my kids put on shorts. Because your body does crave that sun, the feeling of the sun on your skin. And so how neat to notice that animals do the same thing. And then in this section, you also talked a lot about frogs. And I liked how you connected to different organizations. So one of the ones you talk about, and this is throughout the book, but in this particular chapter, Frog Watch USA, how we can connect with these organizations and connect with others through doing these different observation activities. So let's talk about that one in particular. 
Sure. Yeah. Um, I am a big advocate and fan of um, citizen science or community science projects where people can really be involved. And I love those programs and projects that have kids involved because a lot of times kids, if you can count, you can participate in some of these. And if you can listen or notice, you can participate. And Frog Watch USA is such a great project. It's really about listening for the frogs because frogs in the springtime make a ton of songs or noise, just like birds. It's all about mating and courtship. And so when you go out and you hear something like a spring peeper, which is just the peep, 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 you know, you can record that. And that's important information because we don't really know where all of our frogs are and we don't really know how the population is. But if you and your kids can go out and participate in Frog Watch and learn to identify the local frog calls in your neighborhood and your community and you submit that information, it helps scientists paint a picture of where there's frogs in the United States or in the world world in North America. And that's really important information because, you know, we need to know because how do we know if something's going to disappear unless we know where it is to begin with? That's motivating. I could imagine for certain children, that would be so motivating to know that they're teaming up and they're helping the scientists. And so you have that, like I said, throughout the book, that's just the one example for Frog Watch USA, but you have other examples of ways that we can observe and be a part of, of citizen science. So once again, a scavenger hunt at the end. And then we're already running out of time. This is such a cool book, but you have a whole section about arthropods. So you're talking about insects. And so can you just tell a couple, I loved this wording. You talked about the superpowers. Oh, I loved it. So what are some of the superpowers of arthropods? Well, there are just so many of them. And again, um, you know, arthropods make up like invertebrates make up more of the animals on earth than the vertebrates. And so this is really like such a rich area. And I guess in a way that's part, that's one of their superpowers. There's just so many of them, you know, and there's even ones that we don't know yet. I mean, if you read at the end of every year, they discover like so many new invertebrates. So I think that's pretty amazing. And I love that they wear their skeletons on the outside of their bodies their exoskeleton. And just like the snake, you know, sometimes they have to shed their exoskeleton and you can find those. Think of cicadas. Mm -hmm. When a cicada is growing, it it molts and it sheds its skin. Or think of, um, think of this superpower. Think of a caterpillar, like a monarch, a beautiful, such a cute caterpillar, the monarch caterpillar and how it totally transforms from this like green and yellow and black little caterpillar into this orange and black beauty. And the chrysalis that it makes is got a thread of gold around it. And nobody knows even what that gold is. What the heck is that? It's so beautiful. Wow. So I mean, I just feel like those little dots of gold are so pretty. It's so regal, it seems it's fancy. What is it though? Like what is it? And just the fact that they go into this chrysalis as a as like a worm-like creature and they kind of liquefy and then come out as a flying beauty with scales on its wings and these feet that can taste and a tongue that is curly. I mean, you couldn't ask for it. You couldn't make up something like that. If somebody wrote a book like that, you'd be like, what kind of book is this? But I mean, this is real life. So I just, I think that, um, you know, paying attention to the invertebrates, to the insects in our world, 
again, it's fascinating. It's magical. It's enchanting. It's sometimes scary, you know, <laughs> like I, I will have a true confession here, but I am scared of spiders. Mm. Um, this, the, how they move, how they wiggle and, um, unexpected. And when I'm out and catching things with kids, I'm always working on getting on top of my response. And I think as parents Mm. and caregivers and role models, we owe it to our kids to try to be as generous and open hearted with the animals that we're a little uncomfortable with. It's hard, Mm. but to not share our phobia. And I I will say um, my daughter is scared of spiders too. So I don't know if I did a great job. Yeah, We have one that's scared of spiders. And I think that people will be encouraged to hear you say that because here you are a naturalist and you work with children and you speak and you have been doing this for decades and you still have a little bit of fear around certain things in nature and I think that makes it seem more normal and yet you're still out there because spiders are are everywhere even inside the home which you talk about that in the book that you can look at the nature that's inside of your home which is an interesting way to look at it instead of being irritated. I love that there is this iNaturalist has the Never Home Alone project, Never Home Alone. I thought that's a brilliant name talking about what's actually in your home. So I think people will be encouraged to hear that. You know, a lot of people have things that make them feel a little shaky, but that you can still be out there interacting. And in speaking of the spiders, I thought one of the coolest ideas in the book was do the web. Oh, yeah. Because I've seen wet spider webs a few times, not a lot, but I never thought about this idea. So can you tell us what that one is? Yeah, sure. You just get a little um, like spray bottle with just regular water in it and you go out and this is great activity in the spring, summer and fall when spiders are most active Um, and you, you see a spider web. You just spray it with the spray bottle and you want it on the most, the mist setting on your spray Mm -hmm. bottle so you don't hurt the spider web. And this do, it will do the spider web. It will cover it with little droplets of water, just like as though, you know, there was actual dew on it and you can see it. And spider webs are really beautiful. And, you know, scientists are studying spider webs all the time. How is something, it's so strong, it's so Mm -hmm. stretchy, it's so sticky, but um, kind of clear at the same time. It's kind of fascinating. And I, I've read that they're trying to like make artificial spider web to be used in building materials and even in like repairs to your organ because it, it can, it sticks in a different way than wow. like tape. So I just think spider like me, this is hard because I, I just share that I do feel sometimes uneasy around spiders, but I've working hard to be accepting and notice that the the gifts that spiders can give us Mm. from their webs to maybe scientific advancements to the fact that their eyes glow like little rubies and sapphires in the tall grass in the summer. Mm. Yeah. And that you talked about the same thing with slime, that the slime from snails is used for all sorts of different things too, even maybe our makeup or things that we put on our skin. Foot snot. I love that. That was the phrase. So this book, I just, we didn't even get through the whole thing. You have other invertebrates in there, worms, snail slugs, sea stars. And then at the end, which you did such a fantastic job on the end, Susie, with the resources for each category. I've actually not seen this before in a book either. 
So at the end, you have resources for each of your different chapters. So if you wanted to learn more about the birds or if you were more interested in the herping, so you would go to the back. And then what you did was you put the place, but then you also did a little bit of explanation about what it is. And I thought that was great. So this would be an example. Owling, Enter the World of the Mysterious Birds of the Night by Mark Wilson. And then you have a little description of what it is, a wonderful children's guide to owls, including profiles of owl scientists and projects and filled with the author's incredible photographs. I love that. I love the way that you you. did the resources in here, Susie. Well, I just did it the way that I would want it done. You know, like, Mm -hmm. um, like you can go to the back of a book and find resources, but if you don't know what those resources are really about, then would you spend your time looking for them? But you know, right. if you have a little description about it. And I guess so fortunate to be a naturalist for all these years. And But I feel like everybody's a naturalist. You don't have to have any expert knowledge. You just have to have curiosity and sort of an interest in getting out there and doing it. And if you have, if you know what the tools are and where the resources are, then you can just go for it and mm-hmm. enjoy being out in nature. And I hope that lots of people do that. Aww. Yeah, it was such a beautiful way to end the book because it's interesting that as someone who has been working for decades, that you could sort of narrow down to your five favorites for each category. And some of them are websites. And there's one of a YouTube video I thought was neat, What to Notice About Earthworms. Or I like this one, The Disgusting Critter Series. Enjoy these humorous and scientific books by artist and author Elise Gravel, highlighting such fascinating creatures as worms and slugs. So that's a great thing to have these resources in the back because Mm -hmm. they help you to notice more of the everyday things around us in new ways. So Susie, I loved this book. Well, thank you, Jenny, so much. That is just making my day because I love your project of a thousand hours outside. Like I want everybody, everybody to pledge to do it because you're so right. If we have time in our life to spend thousands of hours on our screen, what a loss to, I mean, what a loss for us as people to not have the same amount of time outside because really what's, what's real and what's not. Right. And this is such a great pairing because I think that for most of us, our time outside is just right around where we live. And so this adds enchantment to it. And you just did such a wonderful job of reminding us of the wonder that is around us all the time. And we can look for it in new and different ways. So Susie, this has been such a delight. We always end our podcast with a favorite outdoor memory of yours from your childhood. Oh, wow. Um, So growing up in Brooklyn, I have this amazing experience at um, Jamaica Bay Wildlife Refuge, which is in Queens, New York. And we, my parents read in the paper that a snowy owl had come to town. And um, I know I'm talking about the everyday animals, but this was like an everyday place that we went to regularly. And there was an international visitor from far, far away from the north, the most northern reaches. So we, we took the subway and we, waited in line there were like a hundred 
or more people in line. And actually that's the first time I ever saw a bird blind. They had a bird blind set up. So it was finally my turn. It was cold. It was winter time. You know, that's when they come. And I peeked through the little slit in the blind and there was this visitor, this owl, this beautiful, huge white owl and its back was facing me. But as I looked right through, it turned its head and it looked right at me and I saw like its eyes and it just stuck with me. And I always like to say, like, if you could take my heart out and like, look at what makes my heart really tick, um, that would be right at the center. I think after that, I was just captivated by, by nature and by owls and by the idea that even in a place like New York City, in Queens, New York, you could come across something like this exotic being. And again, I know it's not a local, it's not something you see in your everyday life, but it was in a place I went to mm-hmm. so often in my everyday life. So yeah. it was really magic for me. Wow, what a story. Susie, thank you so much for taking the time to be here. I know you are going to inspire so many. It's helping me think about just our everyday walks and our everyday experiences in a different way. I'm excited to notice the robins and the squirrels all in a new way and to try and look for the different colors of eye shine. All of this I know is going to enhance our family's life so much. And you've already done for thousands of families. And this book will reach so many more outside of your area. People can come find you if they live in the New Hampshire area. If they want to find out more about you, suziespickle.com. And your book, The Animal Adventurer's Guide, How to Prowl for an Owl, Makes a Snail Slime and Catch a Frog Barehanded, 50 Activities to Get Wild with Animals is available where you buy your books. And I know that people are going to get so much out of that. Thank you for being here. Jenny, thank you so much. And I just, yeah, I can't wait to see what else you do. So I'm inspired by you. So thank you for this opportunity to spend time with you. Yeah, it was a good match. It was a good match, wasn't it? (laughs) Perfect. It's perfect. Hey, are you a parent of a teenager? Are you feeling overwhelmed about how to be what they need while also holding limits and boundaries that keep them safe? Are you tired of conversations that negate how messy this season of parenting is? Well, I've got you. My name is Casey O'Rourke. I am a positive discipline trainer, parent coach, and the host of the Joyful Courage podcast. Every week I come to you with an interview, digging into tough topics with experts I trust and solo shows that go deep into the personal growth and mindset needed to raise teens in a way that grows them into confident, capable young people. I am not afraid of getting real about the intersection of conscious parenting and the teen years, while also bringing in vulnerability, humor, and lightness. I'm walking the path with you and honored to serve. Listen to Joyful Courage on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you consume podcasts.